So this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray that God would apply it deeply to our hearts. Lord, as we look at your word, love us with it, help us, convert us, convict us, console us, change us for the glory of him whose word it is, even Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 17. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Have you seen the t-shirt, Life is Good? Sometimes it's on a hat. Life is good. Do you like it? I have mixed feelings, actually. On the one hand, life is good, is a very biblical idea. You can see it in the text. Look at verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Translated, life is good. This is apparently something we should strive for, according to King David, who originally wrote Psalm 34, that Peter is quoting (laughs) with blessing. God built you for paradise. Naturally, we long for the good life. Don't we all instinctively prefer peace to strife, plenty to poverty, pleasure to pain, health to sickness, order to chaos, competence to failure, clarity to ambiguity, purpose to confusion, and paradise to agony? Of course we do. Life is good echoes you and I were built for paradise. So in that respect, I like it. On the other hand, why I have mixed emotions. A bald statement like that, life is good, 
require some explanation, some elaborating, uh, establishing some conditions. So for a biblical thinker, life is good is not, uh, it doesn't say enough. What makes life good is not life inherently. What makes life good is life is derivative. Life is good because it's derived from God who is the author of life, the God who claims to give life and breath to all things. This is how Paul preached to a fairly hostile audience in Athens on Mars Hill. Among other things, he said, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Translated, we're not free to make up images of God according to our own liking. No, there's a God who is there. And that God, Paul says, that God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The reason life is good, the reason we have life, it's derived from a creator God. So life is good when it's lived on his terms for his glory. So I like the t-shirt, but there are conditions. And I want you to see three in the text. There's a sense in which, what is this text about? It's about the good life. This comes out of Psalm 34 that Peter is lovingly quoting for us. So here are three conditions that make life good. Life is good when... So get the t-shirt ready, get the marketing experts ready. (laughs) Life is good, and you're going to have three conditions on the t-shirt. It'll look very wordy. Life is good when, Peter says, live for each other. Verse 8. Finally... All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter has been instructing husbands and wives. Again, I'll get to this in a few weeks. And he's putting a capstone not only on how those relationships are going to work, but on all of our relationships, all of you, married or not, boys and girls, grandparents, singles, all of you. These are qualities that, like the oil in your engine, make relationships work. They lubricate our relationships. One way to summarize this verse is simply this. I'm for you. Because God is for me, and God is for you, I'm for you. And what's the proof that God is for you? Jesus. These qualities, among other things, reflect the beauty of Jesus' heart and the way Jesus is for you. Look at these verses again. You see in living color, technicolor, the beauty of the heart of who Jesus is as well as the way Jesus relates to you. Jesus sympathizes with us. He has come into this world to experience pain and suffering and strife and what it means to exist in a fallen, wretched world. He's come to identify with all the challenges of living in a fallen world. Fulfilling what later David would write in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. Who did that par excellence? Jesus, how would you describe the ministry of Jesus, among other things? Near to the brokenhearted, 
saving the crushed in spirit. Little did David know that the glory of God in Christ would be fulfilling those words in the flesh, touching lives, healing, restoring. And beloved, he tenderly cares for you the same way. He loves you by doing good to you. In humility, Jesus puts himself ahead of you. What's the proof of that? His cross, putting his own welfare aside, bearing the penalty due your sins, the judgment due your sins in his flesh, so that you never will bear it. Fulfilling the end of the psalm, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What a promise that through Jesus' condemnation, you have a refuge from the wrath of God. Again, David, not quite seeing Jesus as clearly as we, speaking of his triumph over sin and death and over the grave. What about the tenderheartedness of Jesus? Well, hear it in the invitation of Matthew 11. Jesus says, Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will refresh you. For my heart is gentle and humble. And it's in that spirit, beloved, we can have a fundamental disposition towards others that is, come to me, find rest. I'm for you. Let me refresh you. How might my resources bring, bring meet the particular needs of your problems at the moment? Jesus has expended himself completely on the cross for you. How can I expend my resources to bless you? So here's an important principle. You can't give away what you don't have. Until your heart is filled with this grace of Jesus, this self-sacrificing, saving, life-laying-down grace of Jesus, you'll be hard-pressed to love other people in this way. You just won't be able to be for them. <laughs> you'll want them to be for you. And you may be wondering, what primes the pump of this other center type love? How about Humility. Peter lists this last, perhaps as an admission that all of these others are impossible without humility. How does a humble mind think? Actually, I tried to answer that question in a sermon a number of weeks ago, and I won't replicate what I said there. Let me give you a new twist on that question. I think it's important. How does a humble mind think? A humble mind is ceaselessly comparing the humble mind always compares. It's comparing. For example, compared to God, I'm a failure. The humble mind. The humble mind compared to what I would be left to myself, utterly undone as a human being, I am, through rescuing grace, amazingly different. Do you do that comparison? Think that by God's rescuing grace, you are so different than what you would be left to yourself. The humble mind compares. Compared to what I deserve, you are what? Supremely well off. The humble mind does that comparing. Compared to what you've been given, 
you should be much better than you are. Humble mind. Do you believe that? You don't? Mind's not humble. (laughs) Distracted with something else, some form of pride. Compared to the way Jesus treats me, I can treat others far better than they deserve. The humble mind compares. Compared to where I need to grow, I need to change a lot more than I know. The humble mind compares. And not surprisingly, to try to drive home points, Peter, as God often does in his word, provides exhortations with cautions and incentives. Cautions and incentives. God explains the good life in some detail, and he wraps that with some cautions and incentives. God knows how to motivate us. He knows what we need. Apparently we need cautions and incentives. What's the caution here? Peter says in verse 9, don't repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Peter's admission, life's hard. It's full of sin, brokenness. We're tempted to bitterness. We hurt and disappoint each other and are hurt by other people. And we may be treated extremely poorly simply for identifying with Jesus. And the temptation at those points is to jump into the fray and match reviling with reviling. You do that to me, I'm going to do that to you. That's the old adage. Don't get mad, get even. It's a distinctly unbiblical way to live. No, Peter says, instead, bless. Tomorrow you may read in Proverbs 17, stop the quarrel before it breaks out. Yesterday you may have read in Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. What a privilege to respond to reviling, criticism, maligning, with the very words Jesus responded to us reviling him on the cross, we reviled Jesus on the cross. And how did Jesus respond? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That same grace by the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. We can bless in the place of reviling. And what, okay, what does it mean to bless? I'll take this stab at it. It's making yourself available to God as an instrument to bring benefits to other people. Benefits, wisdom, love, resources, power, a listening ear, whatever it is. And those benefits are designed to lift that person out of a place of deficit. I mean, if they're reviling you for belonging to Christ, think of what a deficit that soul is in. God has purposed that as we, in the pattern of Jesus, exchanging our reviling him for Father, forgive them, they know that we do. Grace can break through into those situations. What's, that's the caution. What's the incentive? Well, you're called to obtain a blessing. What's the blessing? Commentators aren't all agreed, but it has to at least be this much. Good relationships are their own reward. Good relationships beat the pants off of strife. Was it this morning or yesterday's Proverbs? Better is a little than a house full of feasting with strife. You know that. God's blessing is on your life when you do that. His favor, his presence, 
His supply. And you find joy in these relationships, bringing joy to the heart of Jesus. And you, you sometimes identify with Jesus. Oh, now I get it. What you experience being reviled when all you did was bless people and they returned reviling, now I get it. I understand what you went through. Those are blessings. So we're answering the question, life is good when? Life is good when? That's the first point. Live for each other. Verse 8. Secondly, life is good when seeking peace and doing good. Verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. There's your t-shirt. Life is good. Not inherently, but derivatively. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. What strikes you about these words, Peter's borrowing from David? What strikes you about them? How does he define the good life? Well, he defines it on the one hand in a way that was perfectly modeled in Jesus. Jesus would have had these verses memorized. These would have given shape to his life. And in his hardest moments when he's being reviled for doing nothing wrong, you wonder if the Spirit had not called these verses to Jesus' mind to give him the grace not to respond, to be deceitful. We saw how he responded in tongue at the end of chapter 2. What's also striking if, about these verses, if you to asked me, how do you define the good life, Mike, I would be tempted to find it this way. Nice church, good marriage, successful kids, and a healthy amount of cash in my bank account. That's how I would define the good life. Who defines the good life by the way you speak? God. God does. He likes to surprise us. You want to live a good life? Look at how you speak. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. What does this force you to do? It forces you to look into your heart. What's going on in my heart that I'm speaking this way? How are my words impacting other people? Those I'm graced in Jesus to bless, to communicate I'm for you. Here's the principle. What's hidden in your heart and perhaps otherwise out of sight becomes visible where? In your words. In your words. Proverbs 10, 11. I mean, have any doubt about this? Just read the book of Proverbs. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. This morning, some of you may have read Proverbs 16. It's the 16th. Verse 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul. Health to the body. I mean, boys and girls, if mom and dad woke you up this morning, you got out of bed and, and they said to you, I have something for you today. Sweetness to your soul. Health to your body. You'd say, sign me up. What, what's that dependent upon, mom, dad, roommate? What's it dependent upon? The way you talk. I'm not sure that's intuitively obvious to us. It is to Jesus, 
Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Any doubt what's going on in a person's heart, it shows up in their words as a rule. This is really helpful because oftentimes we hide from ourselves what's going on in our hearts. So we better start parsing our words. <laughs> and so the good life is not enjoyed apart from consistent intentionality. Watching over your heart, thinking about your words, is the Spirit ruling my heart? Are my words produced by the Holy Spirit? Are they hurting other people? Let your t- let, turn away from evil, do good, let them seek peace and pursue it. We're in the midst of that seeking even now as a congregation. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Why? It's good for you. Don't you want what's good for you? It's good for others. And you will be a living, visible reflection of the invisible glory of God. That should be compelling enough, but we do get cautions and incentives. What's the caution? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Enough said. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you need any more caution than that? What's the incentive? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. Enough said. Who needs more than the eye of the Lord is on the righteous? His ears are open to their prayer. Communion with God. Friendship with God. Moving in partnership with God. Life is good when there are conditions. And here's the last one. Life is good. You got the t-shirt ready? Who's going to make a million dollars off the t-shirt? Life is good when suffering for doing good. I wouldn't instinctively think that. I would maintain that life is good when I'm not suffering at all. And of course, of course, it's a blessing if you're not suffering. It's a blessing to live in a place where you aren't necessarily reviled for belonging to Jesus. Thank God. But Peter acknowledges that sometimes when you seek to do good, people notice, people who aren't at peace with God, then make themselves not at peace with you. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? The way he shapes the question, the answer is normally no one. In principle, most of us, you don't have to be religious, most of us like people who are zealous for for doing good. Okay? Verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Doing good may incur the ire of people who don't get it. People who have an aversion to God sometimes have an aversion to the godly. And there could be a price to pay. Slander, being vilified, physically harmed, the loss of your job happens in America. People don't get jobs because they love Jesus. They lose jobs because they love Jesus. They're treated scornfully because they love Jesus. It's not just in persecuted countries where it's awful. It happens here. 
And the principle is good things come with a cost. Verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is the will of God, than for doing evil. Your ultimate confidence can be this is God's will, God is in control, God is good, God will redeem this, God is present with me. Easy to say if I'm not particularly suffering this way, but nonetheless true. What's the caution? Don't let this suffering dim your zeal for what is good. Have no fear of them, he writes at the end of 14, or be troubled, but sanctify Christ, uh, sanctify in your hearts. Sorry, I have this verse memorized in the New American Standard, not ESV. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. I'm going to return to verse 15 subsequently, because I'm not going to say anything else about it. There's a caution in there. What's the incentive? Peter says, you will be blessed. You will experience the pleasure of being in the will of God. You'll enjoy a good conscience. You may even have the privilege of explaining why you have hope in Jesus. People might notice and they'd ask you. But I want to finish with this question. Where do you think Peter learned about suffering for doing good? In the academy? No. Living with Jesus. Watching Jesus. Being there. At his trial, arrest, and the cross. Zeal for doing good, nothing but good, and dying as if he'd done none of it, is what marked Jesus' life. Just think of a tiny description of the good Jesus did. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He spoke the truth. He challenged abuse. He delivered the oppressed. He revealed the glory of God. He fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. He explained the meaning of the Old Testament. He perfectly manifested the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And for such moral excellence, he suffered, he suffered on his cross the penalty due all of our law-breaking and is only too pleased to give to you the glory of all of his law-keeping. The gospel is this exchange, if you will, comparison. <laughs> Compared to what Jesus did, you're awful. He takes that and in exchange gives you his righteousness. You'll never be condemned. You'll never be forsaken. And again, I think we said Jesus knew the words of Psalm 34. He knew these words. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He knew those words. He knew those words on the cross. Because at that moment, he is bearing in his body the evil of our sin. And his Father's face was against him. Moving Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the answer? God has forsaken Jesus in that moment, so you who trust him never will be forsaken. Never. Perfectly accepted, perfectly loved, thoroughly cleansed, made his precious possession by grace 
through the rejection of Jesus. So Christianity is, is startlingly arresting, so arresting we probably couldn't put it on t-shirts. Yeah, there's a nice t-shirt. Life is good. I like it with conditions. What's the Christian t-shirt? Life is resurrection because of a hideous cross. Life is resurrection. He raises us by his power because by his power he withstood the face of God against your evil dying in your place. That is good for us. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, that you have purchased for us everlasting good, everlasting peace, immediate righteousness, perfect cleansing and forgiveness through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, who conquered the grave and who is the Lord of life. Give us this life. Let us taste and see how good it is. Let us experience something of the horror that the face of the Lord was against those who do evil and there being rejected on the cross And yet your Father accepted your sacrifice. And you now lavish upon us love, mercy, kindness, grace, compassion, everlasting goodness. Fill us with these things. Change us. That we might bless our tormentors and live in peace with each other and experience life as you've called us. In Jesus' name, amen.